If you have been with us at Christ Church for some length of time, of the almost 12 years that I've been a pastor here, you may know two things about me. The first thing is that my general pattern is to preach consecutively through books of the Bible, with only rare exceptions altering to take a different text. The second thing you may know about me is that I am a planner. And so it should not surprise you, and you should not be caught at guard, that on this Easter day, this Resurrection Sunday, we just happen to come to the text in Romans, of Romans 1, 3-4. I'm not sure I could find a better text to preach on Easter than Romans 1, 3-4. It tells us who the Lord Jesus Christ is, and what He has done and what the importance is of the resurrection. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. We'll look this morning at verses 3 and 4. But for our text reading this morning, we'll begin at verse 1 and go through verse 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. O Lord, we pray that You would use Your Word this morning. We pray that by Your Holy Spirit, who is the author of Your Word, that You would help us to understand Your Word. We pray also, Lord, that You would help us to apply Your Word to our lives. And we ask, O Lord that by your word you would change us, that it would take deep root in our hearts. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Resurrection is at the heart of the Christian message. There is a reason why on Easter we celebrate. And in our passage this morning... Paul speaks about the resurrection, but he also speaks about the resurrection in its connection to the gospel. As he opens this letter, Paul tells us that the letter to the Romans is about the gospel. We saw this last week. We saw that the gospel is good news. We saw that the gospel comes from God, that it starts with him. And we saw that we can rely on the gospel because 
It is grounded in God's promise to us, his people. And now Paul is about to open up the gospel for us. And he tells us that the gospel is about God's Son. Do you notice that at the very beginning of our text this morning? He says the gospel is concerning His Son. So this morning we're going to see Paul lay out for us a picture of how the resurrection declares to us who Jesus is and what He has done. First, we will see that by the, by the resurrection, Christ is declared to be man. That Jesus Christ is fully human, and this is critical for our redemption. Second, we see Christ declared to be God. And this is also true, and no less crucial, than the fact that Jesus is man. Jesus is God. But then thirdly, Paul will show us by the resurrection that Christ is declared to be Lord. And this is crucial for you and me and how we live our lives. Christ declared to be man, Christ declared to be God, and Christ declared to be Lord. Let's begin then and open up what Paul has for us in verses 3 and 4. He begins saying that the gospel is concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, you may find it interesting the way Paul begins this letter to the Romans. He could have started like the gospel writers, couldn't he? He could have begun this letter to the Romans talking about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and how he came to earth. Or instead, he could have perhaps started with a theological framework, an outline as it were. But instead, he starts with the factual fulfillment of God's promise. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The factual fulfillment of God's promise is found in the person and work of Jesus. And that is what distinguishes biblical Christianity from every other religion. You see, in other religions or philosophies, there is no great tie to their founder or initial teacher. They can simply summarize the teachings independent of of the teacher. No one even knows, for example, much about Buddha. And yet, Buddhism survives to this day. Islam teaches a great many things, but does not depend on the character of Muhammad. But with Christianity, without Jesus, there is nothing. Jesus makes all the difference. And his resurrection shows us exactly who he is and what he has accomplished. So the first question that should come to our minds is, so who is Jesus? Tell me a bit about him. Some say he was a good teacher. Others say that he was a made-up ideal, an amalgamation of principles that his followers put together. But the Bible teaches us that he is much more than that. 
The Bible teaches us who Jesus is, is grounded in history. Paul says that he was descended from David according to the flesh. He puts Jesus in time and space for us to know and to see. He is grounded in history. Jesus was born, Jesus lived, and Jesus died. In that sense, he is like you and me. Now, there is much more to Jesus. We'll get to that in a few moments. But this is critical for us, that Jesus is, in one sense, like us. He is fully human. That's what Paul means when he says, according to the flesh. He's describing Jesus according to the flesh. Now, flesh is a word that Paul uses quite often in his books. More than 60 times he uses it in the New Testament. Sometimes he uses it to describe the frail or sinful part of being human. But often he uses it just to describe what it means to be human. And that's how he's using it here in our text this morning. He's describing Jesus as being human like you and like me. He is a man. But he's not just any man. Paul describes Jesus in two parallel phrases. He says he was descended from David according to the flesh. And then a parallel phrase we'll look at in a few moments. He says he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. So what does it mean when he says that Jesus is descended from David according to the flesh? Now I want you to take a look at this word, was. It is a verb that often is used to mean become or to be born, or to take on. That's why it is linked here with was descended. The word for descended is actually a noun. It says Jesus was of the seed of David. You may know that biblical phrase. But I want you to think about this. What that implies is, is that there was a time when Jesus was not of the seed of David. There was a time when Jesus was not man. And so, Jesus took upon himself humanity. It was an addition that he was born of a woman. The idea here is that he is taking on a nature, even that of being born. And he came from David. And this is how Paul picks up what he says earlier in chapter 1 about it being promised beforehand. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David to send a branch from David who will establish God's kingdom. Jeremiah speaks of it this way in chapter 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteous. So Jesus will be a king 
But not just any king. He will be the one who will reign over God's kingdom. This is what God had promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. That he would have a descendant who would reign over an eternal kingdom. And that it would be established to bless all people. And Jesus is that one, Paul is telling us. He is the one who fulfills the promise to David. He is the one that fulfills the promised prophesy, prophecy from Jeremiah. He is the one who fulfills the promised prophecy from Isaiah. Jesus is declared to be this one by the resurrection. Now, we can see how Jesus is established as king. Because the Bible declares that the king will be one descended from David. And the Bible also shows us that Jesus is descended from David on both sides of his parents, if you would. Mary is a descendant of David. But Joseph is also a descendant of David. Jesus' adoptive father, if you will. And so Jesus has every right to the throne of David. We see this, but the question that might come is, how can Jesus establish the kingdom of God and bless his people? Because the Bible tells us that we need more than a king. We need more than someone to tell us what we should do. Because the problem is that we are lost. The problem is that we die. The problem, in short, is sin. And so how can the problem of sin be solved? And what the resurrection does is it declares to us that Jesus is the sacrifice for sin that reconciles God to man. Because sin requires judgment to be executed for it. God would not be righteous, he would not be just if he simply ignored the problem of sin. We understand that even as people living in a sinful world. We see things happen in the world and we say, that's not right. That's unjust. And it makes us angry. And what do we say? Someone needs to fix that. That's not how it's supposed to be. And so God cannot simply wink at sin or pass it over. He must punish sin. But the punishment for sin is more than you or I could bear. Because what sin is, is an infinite crime against an infinitely holy God. And so we are not able to satisfy that punishment. We cannot pay that penalty. That's actually the whole idea behind hell. That hell is the eternal punishment of sin. That's why the fire is never quenched. That's why the worm is never stopped. One Puritan put it this way. If there were to be an occasion where a bird were to come to a seashore, and every thousand years the bird were to take one pebble of sand and take it away, there would possibly be, no, there would certainly be an end to that. It would be longer than anything we could imagine, but there would be an end. There is no end to hell. It never ceases. Infinite is by definition without end. Now that doesn't exactly help us, does it? 
This is not good news. And so what Paul does is he tells us that Jesus takes our place. That is why he became man according to the flesh. He didn't become less. He actually became more. He took on humanity as a way to solve the problem of sin. As a man, he could die for sin. It is the only way that sin could be paid for in full and we could be justified. It is the only way that God could be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Jesus took our sin upon himself. What Paul says later in Romans, that the wages of sin are death. Jesus paid those wages. He died for the sin of those who trust in Him. And so on that Good Friday, He took up His cross. He submitted Himself to the shame, to the punishment. He stood as a criminal in our place. The only one who had never committed a crime, the only one who had never sinned, He bore the wrath of God for sin. And the proof of His sacrifice was found in his death and burial. The proof of his victory is found in the resurrection. We need never worry if all of our sin has been paid for, if there's not something left over, a gotcha moment. No, because Jesus has paid it all, and the testimony to that is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But the story doesn't end with the death of Jesus. Some of you know that one of my favorite short sermons is Sunday's Coming by S.M. Lockridge. He talks about how Jesus was betrayed. It's Friday. It's Friday. The darkness comes. It's Friday. They beat my Lord. It's Friday. They hang him on the tree. But Sunday's coming. And that's what the resurrection points us to. The darkness of Friday cannot hold back the glory of Sunday. It's why Paul gives us this second parallel phrase to describe Jesus. He's not just descended from man. No, he is also declared to be the Son of God. Now I want you to notice the significant difference here. He was descended, that is, he took something on, but he was declared to be the Son of God. He was not made the Son of God. He has always been and always continues to be God. The resurrection simply declared him to be so. It's not that there is something that is added to Jesus to make him divine. Now, this idea of declared has at its oldest roots the idea of land use. What? It was used to describe how you bounded out one piece of land from another. You marked it off. You declared it as yours. You probably do this in your own home or area. You mark off your property often with a fence. Or perhaps with some other kind of marker. You know where your ownership stops and where the others begins. Now, the fence doesn't make you the owner of that property, does it? No. 
All it does is declare to everyone that that is your property. And that's the idea that Paul is getting at here. That the resurrection does not make Jesus God, but it declares him publicly to be God. The resurrection shows us that Jesus is God because man could not stand up under the punishment of sin. He could never satisfy divine justice. Remember the infinite punishment? So if divine justice is satisfied, if sin is paid for, Jesus must be more than man. And Paul says this in his other parallel phrase, according to the spirit of holiness. You see, that Paul has set up here two very elaborate parallel statements, one about Jesus' humanity, one about his deity. And just as he was according to the flesh, human, he is according to the spirit of holiness, divine. Now, when we first see this, our thought is that this is something to do with the Holy Spirit. After all, it's the spirit of holiness. It's the Holy Spirit. But the difficulty is, is that this phrase is only used here in all of the New Testament. And it's never used specifically about the Holy Spirit. And as a matter of fact, the resurrection is not specifically ascribed to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It is typically described as the work of God the Father. Like in Galatians chapter 1 verse 1, where Paul prays to God who raised Jesus from the dead. Or it may be even ascribed to Jesus when Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it back up again. So we don't have to immediately jump to the conclusion that just because the word holy is there and just because the word spirit's there, that this is referring to the third person of the Trinity. So what then is Paul saying here? I think what he's saying is that it is better to understand this phrase as referring to Jesus' deity. That Jesus is holy. That His Spirit is holy. Now, if you think about it, if we go back to the beginning of Jesus' life, to the beginning of the Gospels, you remember when Mary was with child, the angel came to her and said, The Holy One that is in you, He will save His people from their sins. You may remember that when David was prophesying in the Psalms about Jesus, the Messiah, the one who would not stand any corruption in Psalm 16, verse 10, he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That's a reference to the resurrection. I'm sure that Paul has that in his mind when he says this because that Actually, that psalm, that verse, formed a part of the core of the early preaching of the apostles. In Acts chapter 2, it's the verse that Peter cites as declaring that Jesus is God. He says that Jesus is risen from the dead and that the Holy One could not see corruption. It's what Paul preached in Acts chapter 13, the same text from Psalm 16. The same connotation that Jesus is God, that he is risen from the dead. And Paul puts it this way in that famous chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 45. He says, the first man became a living being. The second, excuse me, the last Adam 
became a life-giving spirit using the same kind of language. And so this declaration of who Jesus is comes from His resurrection from the dead. From all of the dead, Jesus is the first to be resurrected. Now you may say, well, pastor, what about Lazarus? He was dead, and then he was alive again. What about the widow's son? What about these other people that Jesus raised from the dead? And I think there's an important theological distinction to be made here. They were not resurrected. They were resuscitated. Because Lazarus came back from the dead. And then do you know what happened to him? He died. And then do you know what happened to him? He rotted. He was not resurrected. Jesus is resurrected. He is glorious with a glorious resurrection body. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. We can look to Jesus with great hope because that, Christian, is your hope. Your hope is not to live a bit longer. Your hope is not to have some additional happiness. Your hope is not to have more money or not to be sick. Your hope is to be like Jesus. And that's what God accomplishes through the resurrection. The resurrection declares that Jesus is God. And what good news that is. God himself pays for our sin. We don't need to satisfy a harsh taskmaster. We don't need to pay to the last dime. No, God willingly takes your place and he pays your debt. What could be better news today? Doesn't that give you great hope? To know that God in Christ is for you? But Paul says a bit more about Christ's deity. There's another little modifying phrase that he uses. In power. What does it mean that the resurrection declares that Jesus is the Son of God in power or with power? Is he just referring to the deity of Christ? I don't think so. Because he's already covered himself there. I think there's more. So again, think about the Christmas story. How did Jesus come into the world as God? He came into the world as a baby. Helpless. Fragile even. He was indeed God, but his true authority was hidden. He was what we might call incognito. Now, you know what that's like, don't you? People do that all the time. We see celebrities who don't want to be harassed. They go incognito. They think a hat and some sunglasses will accomplish that. We may do it ourselves. If we don't want to be bothered in a certain place, we may dress a little differently to go incognito. Spies affect certain speech patterns and wear different clothing because they don't want to be noticed. They're incognito. But none of that changes the fundamental principle of who those people are. The resurrection changes all of that for Jesus. No more is Jesus Incognito. What the resurrection does is it declares the power of God 
in the person and work of Jesus. It declares the great victory of Jesus, that there is nothing left to do, that Jesus has conquered death itself. But it also declares who Jesus is for everyone to see, that Jesus is the sovereign Lord, that He is more than the one who has paid our debt. He is also the one to whom all authority and power in heaven and on earth has been given. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at in the Great Commission. Have you ever wondered why at the end of the Gospels is when Jesus says, all power and authority has been given to me? As if Jesus didn't have power and authority before that? No, he certainly did. But after the resurrection... No one has any excuse. Everyone knows because the resurrection has declared who Jesus is and the power that is His. What a powerful statement by the resurrection. You see, we preach a Jesus who has all power. And in this scene, the resurrection is more than just an event. It actually inaugurates or it starts the phase of the kingdom when Jesus is invested with power. It's not that he wasn't God before. He was. He always is. It's not that he didn't have divine power before. He did. He always has. But it is that now, as our mediator, as our king, he has all power as shown by his defeat of death. Jesus is declared to be God by the resurrection. The third thing we see is a public declaration of Jesus as Lord. This is the practical outworking of the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is a public statement about what God has done. It cannot be denied. That is clear from the story from the scriptures. The Jews tried to stop it. They bribed some Roman soldiers and said, tell people you fell asleep. And tell people that his disciples came and took the body away. Never mind the fact that they couldn't have rolled the stone away. Never mind the fact that there was a seal there. They still tried to deny it. The Romans tried to help them. But the guards knew. Even though they were bribed to lie, they knew. It could not be denied. His disciples went and told this story. They left their very lives on the line to declare the public declaration of the resurrection. I read something very interesting this week from Chuck Colson, who was formerly the head of prison fellowship. And he said, I know for certain that the resurrection is true. Watergate proves it. What? He said, because 12 men declared for decades that Jesus rose from the dead. And neither persecution, nor death, nor martyrdom could get them to move away from that declaration. He said, in Watergate... There were 12 of the most powerful men in all of America. And we couldn't keep one lie for a month. You see, 
The public nature of the resurrection is such that it cannot be denied. Oh, people can speak against it. People can make up stories about it. They come to elaborate theories that Jesus wasn't really dead. He just swooned as if somehow you could be partly but not mostly dead after being on a cross for three hours. As if somehow then he could get away and then somehow later die again and no one know. You see, the world will always try to deny the resurrection, but it cannot disprove the resurrection. Because God intentionally made that the public declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. Think about the opening chapters of Acts. Think about how the resurrection was at the center of all of the preaching. Planting the churches. Discipling men, women, and children. Even Paul saw this. He came face to face with the risen Christ and his whole life was changed. And this declaration continues to this day. This declaration of the resurrection conquered the Roman Empire. It spread throughout the known world. It is found in places where it is dangerous to profess. You may remember one Easter in Egypt, there was a bombing of a Christian church because they dared declare Christ is risen. That didn't stop the Egyptians from worshiping Jesus. That didn't stop the Egyptians the next year from declaring Christ is risen. Governments cannot stop it. The government in China has tried over the years to stop the spread of Christianity. To declare that the resurrection is not true. They have destroyed churches. They have imprisoned pastors. They have set the curriculum in educational institutions. All in vain. Because today, by conservative estimates, there are between 80 and 90, catch the word, million Christians in China. Because you cannot stop the declaration that Jesus is Lord. People all over the world hear that declaration. They hear it in Asia. They hear it in Africa. They hear it in South America. They even hear it in Europe. I know in Europe they often have earplugs in to stop that gospel message. But you cannot stop it. Jesus is Lord. And you can rely on that today because... The Lord has made this a public declaration. Jesus, who is the promised heir of David, God himself by the spirit of holiness, is Lord. Don't forget the last phrase of verse 4. Look with me. Paul wraps up his description of Jesus as, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title, the Messiah, the Anointed One. But he is Lord. And this declaration is powerful. Because in Paul's day, this was a subversive message. The only one you were supposed to say is Lord was Caesar. So by this declaration, Christians mark themselves out as subversives. If you've ever wondered why so many Christians were put to death in the days following the writing of the New Testament, this is it. 
They were put to death solely because they refused to stop saying, Jesus is Lord. That was a death sentence in Rome. But Paul would not have stopped. Paul declared that Jesus is Lord. Finally then, what does this mean for you and for me? What is the important implication that Jesus is Lord? It means that Jesus reigns today. It means that in His reign He has completed the work of redemption. And you don't need to do anything more. It has all been done. Theologian John Stott puts it this way. The title Lord is a symbol of Christ's victory over the forces of evil. If Jesus has been exalted over all the principalities and powers of evil, as indeed He has, this is the reason why He has been called Lord. If Jesus has been proclaimed Lord, as He has, it is because those powers are under His feet. He has conquered them on the cross, and therefore our salvation, that is to say, our rescue from sin, Satan, fear, and death, is due to that victory. Jesus is exalted because He is Lord. God has highly exalted Him. Paul puts it this way in that famous passage In Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So what this means is, beloved, If you trust Jesus Christ by faith this morning, if you have said, I can't handle my sin, I'm naked before a holy God, how can I get rid of this guilt? And if your only hope and trust is in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He has taken your sin from you and given you His righteousness in that great transaction on the cross, what it means is is that Jesus is your Lord. The resurrection is more than a declaration. It is also a call to Christians. Jesus is Lord. Will you serve Him today? Jesus is Lord. Will you acknowledge Him before others? Jesus is Lord. And if He is Lord, it changes the way that you think. You now need to think like Jesus. Well, how can I do that, Pastor? How do I know what Jesus would want me to think? Well, I'm glad you've asked that. Jesus has told you in his book. And so if Jesus is your Lord, if you confess the resurrection of Jesus, then you must be a person of the book. You must study the scriptures. You must find God there. You must find your life there. You must live your life according to the commands of Jesus. Because how can you say Jesus is Lord and then not do what he says? You see, the resurrection has great implications, cosmic implications for all of the universe, but it also does for you in the quiet of your home. It means you must serve Jesus because God has declared Him to be who He is. The divine sacrifice for sin. 
the one who has worked atonement, God himself and Lord. The resurrection changes you in every way. The resurrection is the most momentous event in all of human history. It declares that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. That he is God himself who has won the victory. And that he is the Lord and Savior of his people. What a blessed thought. Praise Jesus with me. He is risen. Let's pray.